It's time now to talk with the provost of Minnesota State University, Dr. Matt Cecil, and he's going to talk about some new things as we get closer and closer to the opening of school, as in the fall semester. Good morning, Dr. Cecil. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. So we are moving closer. In fact, we're just weeks away from the official start of the fall semester. And as we talk to you over the summer, things keep changing. And just checking in to see, is there anything new that you have to report since we talked with you a couple weeks ago? Sure. Yeah. And we are only three and a half weeks out now from the start of classes, uh, two and a half weeks until faculty return. So we're, we're getting close. We have a couple of new things. You know, the key point to keep everybody should keep in mind is to be patient because things are shifting and changing. And of course, we've seen uh, some indicators uh, out there that aren't good. Uh, there are a lot of indicators that are moving in really the wrong direction right now. So we're, we're certainly asking critical questions about our plans, and we're at asking critical questions up the line to the system office and the Minnesota Department of Health, uh, trying to make sure that we're moving all together in the right direction. And the guidance that we're getting and that we've gotten is that we should plan for this sort of mixed mode of uh, what we're calling flex-sync courses, which are courses where a student can attend in the classroom or could attend at the same time simultaneously uh, with the rest of the students. They could attend via Zoom. And then we have, so about a third of our classes are straight-up flex-sync classes. About a third are flex-sync with some required in-person experience, like a science lab or something like that. So we're about two-thirds of our uh, classes, and I think there are 3,700 classes, two-thirds are flex-sync, and about one-third are fully online, either whether that be synchronous or asynchronous online courses. And that's one of the key changes that I wanted to talk about is we charge, uh, the state uh, has us uh, charge what we call an online tuition differential. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, it's an additional $36 a credit hour for online courses. Uh, Four and a half dollars of that goes to the system office to pay for our desire to learn learning management system. And then we use the rest essentially to pay uh, to improve quality of online courses and, and availability of online courses. So we might pay adjuncts to add sections. We might we pay for training. We have instructional designers and others that come out of that. So there's a lot of stuff that comes out of that online differential. Well, if you're a student and you signed up for an in-person course, uh, a course that was then moved online because we have more online courses this fall than normal, that might seem pretty unfair to have mm-hmm. to pay that extra $36. And so what we've done is we're removing that online differential uh, from those new online courses, the courses that were moved online uh, primarily because of COVID-19, which means, you know, about 15% of our courses were new online courses. And what students will see uh, is they'll see that change reflected in their bills in the coming uh, about week and a half, uh, that there will be a reduction in their bill if they signed up for one of those courses that was moved online because of COVID-19. And uh, our estimate is that'll save students something like $1.6 million in charges this fall. So we made that decision. Uh, there was never any question that we were going to make that decision. We had to wait for the, the schedule to kind of settle in into place, you know, so that we knew what everything was for sure when you've got 3,700 courses and you're, you know, sort of evaluating every one to make sure you're doing it the right way. There was a lot of work that had to be done, but students will see that reduction if they signed up for an online course that isn't typically offered online in the fall. So that's a big deal, uh, certainly a big deal for our students. That's, one point, as I said, $1.6 million 
uh, that's back into students' pockets uh, at a time when it's a, it's a really tough go for a lot of people out there. How does that impact the university then, Dr. Cecil? Because that's $1.6 million that the university won't be making because of this switch due to COVID. Well, sure. I mean, the good news there is that we still have our normal, really, we have the normal number that we'd normally get in fall, right? So we have the normal number of online courses that we always have. Uh, then we had a bunch that we added, and all we've removed that differential from are the new ones that were added. So we'll get about the same uh, that we normally get in online differential for the fall. Uh, it, it shouldn't change any significant way, and, and really this is a fairness issue anyway. Even if it meant taking away uh, funds that were coming in, we felt like it was the right thing to do for students, and we might be down a hair, but we, we feel like it's the right thing for, for students who didn't necessarily make that choice uh, an affirmative choice to take that course as an online class, it's only fair to not charge them that differential. Is our classes or move-in going to take place as as per usual? Every year we've got the big move-in day when it, students come to campus, and I know that you've talked about housing. They'll be two to a room, and they'll be considered like a family unit, for example. So is that going to be similar, or are there going to be graduated people m- moving in gradually, or, or how is that going to look? Yeah, it's definitely different this year. So we won't have that that mass event with everybody coming to get moved in on a on a given day. Uh, they've got a new thing they're calling it drop and go, where people can, uh, in the I think week before classes, they can, or maybe it's two weeks. I'm sorry, you have to look on residential <laughs> life. But there's a time period when they can sign up uh, to come to town and drop off their stuff, which will be then moved into their room and be there for them uh, when they come for classes. So it's a it's a bit different. Uh, It's, you know, I think convenient uh, in that people can pick a time uh, that works for them to come and bring their stuff. Uh, You know, it it does mean an extra trip for many people, right, because Mm -hmm. they'll have to bring their stuff and then they go back home until they have to come back. Uh, But we think it's the safest way to go. And and you'll see that uh, this is actually really common. A lot of universities are using this same thing. They may have a different name for it, but this idea of dropping your stuff off and then coming back later uh, so that we don't have, you know, 3,000 students and their families all at once uh, trying to drop stuff off. Uh, we just That's just not a wise thing during COVID-19. Well, then all the students return it, though, all at once anyway. They drop their stuff off in a different time, and then they all basically come back the first day of school? Or they'll how... basically come back, yep. Okay. Uh, but they're going to be in that context anyway. So what you try to do in these things, and, and this is another bit of news that, that uh, we're looking at this Thanksgiving as the end of, uh, as transitioning at Thanksgiving from any in-person classes to remote. Uh, We haven't finished uh, on that yet, but I think that's highly likely. But it's the same sort of idea there. You want to avoid these mass movements of people, right? So uh, when it comes to the Thanksgiving break, what happens? Essentially all of our students, Mm -hmm. or most of them, will leave campus and go somewhere. Well, they'll, they'll then mix with a bunch of people who came from other places. Right. And then you, you, you don't want to then move them back. Uh, into onto campus. You want to minimize those mass movements of people. And really, that's what we're trying to do here. Uh, we're trying to give sort of a graduated uh, beginning to the to dorm life, uh, ease people into it. Uh, people will come back at various times in addition to dropping their stuff off at various times, uh, just by, you know, naturally people will come when they're ready to show up. So if you can avoid those mass movements where people are, it sort of compounds the problem. Uh, when people are moving and then interacting with people from lots of different places and then moving back, uh, you want to minimize that as much as you can. So that's kind of the goal of the drop and go. 
And that's also the argument in favor of this idea uh, of ending uh, or transitioning from in-person classes to remote instruction at the Thanksgiving break, which would essentially mean one week of, of classes would be remote, uh, whether that's in FlexSync, and so you just attend via Zoom rather than in the classroom, or an online class, and then, of course, online exams as well. So this is the question. I know the class sizes are greatly reduced, so you can spread out more and everybody's supposed to wear a mask. Let's say you've got someone who reports a case of COVID. Does that mean anybody in that class will have to not come back to class because they'll be quarantined? Or just curious how that works, because you might end up not having anybody in class because students, you know, mix and mingle in different rooms for classes. Absolutely. So the way that all works is the Minnesota Department of Health manages that whole process. We work with them. Mm -hmm. So anything like contact tracing that happens, that's done by the public health professionals at the Minnesota Department of Health. They may request information from us, like, you know, say it was a student on our campus here uh, who tests positive. MDH would be immediately notified. And then their contact tracing begins. And they'll try to figure out who that person interacted with in significant ways through the questions that they ask uh, various people. So they'll say, so what class were you in, you know, on this date to this date? What classes did you have? And then MDH would contact the people who were in those classes and find out what the nature of the interactions were and so on. Uh, So it's going to vary what the response is depending on how the public health professionals assess the risks in in that contact tracing process. Uh, So, but the other thing to keep in mind is since 66 or so percent of our classes have FlexSync uh, as their delivery mode, uh, a student could uh, attend a class via Zoom uh, if they were tested positive and, and in isolation. They could still attend a class uh, in that instance. So we have some flexibility, but the key point there, I think, and, and the really important people or point that I'd like people to understand is we don't do the contact tracing, and we don't determine what the outcomes are uh, for after a positive test. That's done by the public health professionals at the Minnesota Department of Health and also the Blue Earth County Department of Health. Because I was just, I know I've heard different people speculating, and of course we speculation doesn't mean anything other than that you think this could happen, is we'll come back to classes and then all of a sudden we're going to have a bunch of cases and then we're all going to be back to only online again. And is that a possibility? That's absolutely a possibility, no doubt. Uh, and that's that's the big concern, right? So we're trying to figure out, and we're working with the system office to try to figure out what is this, what ha- what would prompt us to make that determination. And keeping in mind that primarily that's going to be a system office decision, not not a local decision. Mm. Uh, they're going to decide whether we go to remote delivery entirely or not, like we did in the spring. Uh, so they're working on all that stuff. I honestly can't tell you exactly what their rubric is that they're using on that. Hopefully we'll find out some more about that in coming days. Uh, but a- another key point to keep in mind is that while we're planning uh, for this, you know, in-person and flex sync and uh, hybrid sort of mixture, no official decision has been made yet uh, what what our, our delivery mode will be. And anything can happen, as we've seen throughout this thing. Uh, this whole crisis since from the beginning, uh, you kind of have to to adapt all along the way. And so, you know, we're watching the signs. And as I said, the many of the indicators are not good right now. We're seeing a mm-hmm. pretty significant uptick in cases in Minnesota in general. We've seen a, an uptick in uh, several of the university counties already. 
uh, as a result of, of students starting to move back into these communities. We're already starting to see that. Uh, so we don't know exactly for sure what's going to happen. What we do know is that our students, we talked to 10,000 of our students. We literally spoke to them. Uh, and they told us very clearly they want us to plan uh, for the possibility of having this, this in-person, on-campus experience. Uh, they think that's very, very important. Now, the public health uh, obviously has to be the top priority, but we've been planning uh, to hope that we can bring this back and, and give students that kind of an experience. We know that things can change anytime. Uh, and as I said, the indicators are not good right now. Well, and that's that's the, the thing kind of a, like last spring when a lot of the students ended up having to leave campus and then you had all the housing issues and had all these reimbursements and I assume that that could be a reality if they come on campus, live here a couple of weeks and all of a sudden they have to go home. We're talking millions of dollars, I assume, that, that we'd have to be dealing with in losses if that happened. Absolutely. There's no doubt. Um, you know, that's not the primary concern. We're it's a concern. I mean, there's no yeah. doubt. You can't you can't talk about it's twelve million dollars worth of revenue a semester on our campus sure. uh, from residential life. It's a significant number. We were able to cover, so we would be, we would have been out about half that for the spring semester. The CARES Act uh, funding helped us to replace some of that. We also had reserve funds there uh, that we we built up and were required to have in case of an emergency like that. But that's not something that that's. Uh, bottomless, right? So there's a point where, you know, if we lose uh, a semester of revenue uh, for residential life, it's lost, uh, and it becomes a huge problem for us. Uh, now, again, we're in better shape than most campuses. We're, yes. We've had really uh, wise leadership uh, financially over the years. Uh, we put ourselves in a very good position to, to weather this as well as anyone could, but there is a breaking point for any any institution where the losses just become really, really uh, a significant problem. Have you been watching other universities? Are some opening earlier than us on other in other states, for example, that where you can kind of gauge what's happening there? I, I I'm not really aware of when yeah. others open. I assume that there probably are some that do start before us. Yeah, there are, and and I, I would note the University of Minnesota is an important one. They had some news today as well. So the University of Minnesota, very early on, made the decision to start a week earlier than they normally would and then to end their in-person instruction and transition uh, at Thanksgiving to the online and remote delivery. Okay. So that's, you know, that's an example of what a lot of universities have done. The other thing that they just announced today, and it was in the Star Tribune this morning, uh, is that they, they have 70% of their classes are online. Uh, I remember the numbers I just said earlier. We're about 66% flex sync uh, with the option to be in person. Uh, they're going to be 70% online. And you better believe that when the University makes uh, Minnesota makes a decision like that, others take note. Uh, and it's an indicator of what they think is going on out there. And, of course, they have one of the, the world's top epidemiologists advising them there, Dr. Osterholm, mm -hmm. uh, who's uh, a, you know an a, amazing resource for the state and our you know, nation, really. So you have to look at that and say, okay, what are they seeing uh, that's going on out there? And they're seeing the same things we're seeing with some difficult indicators uh, that are showing out there. So we have to be ready uh, is the bottom line. We have to be ready to adapt. And, you know, no, no change in, in your schedule is really going to be right if the virus uh, decides to take that moment uh, to surge in a, in a given area. So we really can't predict it very well. Uh, we're hopeful that 
if we choose to uh, uh, transition to online instruction at Thanksgiving, that at least takes away that sort of mass movement that I talked about that we worry about. Uh, but the virus is going to do what it's going to do, uh, and so we have to be ready to adapt. Would you normally then finish out the semester online as per normal, I guess if you can call it normal, and then start the spring semester then at the beginning of Jan- or in January? Yep. So we don't know. So we think that's probably what's going to happen. The, mm-hmm. the, the one thing I would say is that, you know, those sort of the start date of the semester, that's really a set for the whole system uh, mm-hmm. by the system office. So I would guess that there are conversations going on right now about what that looks like. Uh, we haven't heard any of that yet. But, you know, things like spring break, uh, that's a good example of something that might not make a lot of sense in a pandemic. Uh, and so should we adapt our, our calendar based on that, maybe uh, start spring later uh, and skip spring break? Uh, there are a lot of options out there, but honestly, we haven't even gotten to talking about spring. Uh, we've been focused entirely on trying to you know, make our campus as safe as we can make it this fall, uh, take every step that we can. We spent a lot of money, uh, and rightly so. Uh, to adapt our campus and and provide the right kinds of protections for everybody that we can, understanding that, uh, you know, things can change and and it might all be for naught for now. Uh, But we're planning for that and we're hopeful that everything's going to work out the way that, that, uh, you know, our best hopes, uh, understanding that we may have to adapt. Physically, is the campus ready in terms of have they had to move desks out or anything or put cubicles with plexiglass and things like that? Has that all been completed or...? Where's that at? That's all ongoing. Uh, my understanding is that uh, we moved thousands of pieces of furniture off campus to an off-campus storage site. Uh, so classrooms uh, where we had to reduce the seating in really all of our classrooms based on a six-foot buffer around each person, uh, we literally took chairs out. We didn't just want to, you know, mark chairs or put tape on them or something uh, because people might not respect that. Whereas right. If we remove the chairs, and there's only so many chairs in a room, uh, you can you can more or less assure social distancing. And the chairs also, by the way, there are dots on the floor uh, that show where the chairs go. So uh, we're able to provide some indicators to people to help them understand where they need to be. Uh, we've gotten rid of all of that furniture. Uh, it's off campus, safely stored. Hopefully we'll be able to bring it back very soon. Uh, but we've done that for classrooms, for you know public areas, and so on. I was interested to hear from our dean of libraries, though, Chris Corley, that uh, while they removed uh, a lot of seating there, there are still something like 560 places to be in the library uh, that are safely socially distanced. So we will have places where students can be on campus and and hang out safely. Boy, it's got to be maddening, especially if you're a planner and you really can't say there is a a master plan anymore because it's, it's all so fluid. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I got to say, our vice president uh, um, for student success, uh, Dr. Lynn Akey, has uh, been, she's a genius planner, mm-hmm. uh, and she has really helped shape our plans and, and deserves a ton of credit. She and her team deserve a ton of credit for getting us on the right track and, and helping us work through this and also providing us, you know, sort of the on and off ramps for as things shift and change that we're able to still make progress on our plans. And then we have about 100 people, in addition to that, uh, working on campus who have been part of our various planning teams. So it's, yes, it's a very complex process. I'm really proud of our campus. I think 
you know, we have a, a reputation in higher ed of taking forever to do anything. Uh, and yet if you saw, uh, it, you know, I can't even list it all. We don't have time. If you saw the list of, of things that we've changed and planned for over this summer with faculty, staff, students, and administrators, it's astonishing. I mean, we really had to rethink everything about what we do. Uh, and, and again, I think it's a, it, that if there's a positive sign for the future, uh, it's certainly that, that we learned a lot about ourselves and our ability to shift and change in this process. And there, there really doesn't need to be a moment again where we say, you know, some simple change is going to take us a year. We've, we've learned how to change uh, in this process. And I think, you know, if that, that, I think that speaks well for the, the, the future prospects for our campus, uh, that we'll be able to shift and adapt and change to whatever that, that next reality is that emerges once COVID-19 has, uh, has been vanquished. I'm sure that what's going to happen is those who are able to adapt and change are going to be the ones in business, and those that can't may be out of business. And and I'm sure there's other, like you mentioned, other campuses who are in worse financial shape, and, and we're actually fairly decent, so that we could be seeing fewer institutions in the future. Is that possible? I think it's likely, yeah. I mean, I think if you look at, so we're we're a regional comprehensive institution, and if you look at at, in our region, some of the institutions that have been able to, I think, make good plans for this, it's because there's a combination of sort of a, a good financial picture in general, and then a lot of really capable people on the workforce. I mean, if you look at a smaller campus somewhere, they just simply don't have the resources or the people to be able to do, for example, this huge shift to flex sync instruction that we were able to do really quickly. So we're really lucky. I was telling somebody today that, you know, I believe that our campus can really emerge from this as, as even stronger than it was and in, even in a stronger position. Uh, we're going to have to be brave uh, about some of the things that we do and, and how we shift and change. But there's no reason why we, you know, we're the second largest institution in Minnesota. There's no reason why we don't emerge from this uh, if we do this right uh, in an even stronger competitive position than we are now. Uh, but again, we're going to have to be brave. We're going to have to make some changes. We're going to have to uh, allow for the fact that uh, the world won't be quite the same once this is all over. Uh, but we are very lucky that we have these this talented staff and the ability to make some of these things happen that we're doing right now. Mentioning the staff, I've noticed more and more people coming back to campus. Of course, at KMSU, we've pretty much been here the only ones in the building, but now I see that more folks are coming back. And is that sort of going to be gradual as well? Because it doesn't seem like there's not a, a mass all of a sudden everybody's here. It's it's and some I assume maybe won't be coming back. That's true. And so we've we've done this a little differently. Uh, I'll just use uh, our, our friends at St. Cloud as an example. Uh, they're essentially all back on campus now, or at least most of their workforce. They did it over a three week period. They started moving people back. We just felt like the, the risk and reward there wasn't, wasn't good. Uh, we feel like it makes more sense to be really deliberate about how you move people back on campus based on their need to be back on campus and based on what needs to happen on campus. Now, you at KMSU, you've been there the whole time, and thank you so much uh, for everything that you've done, uh, providing that sort of sense of, of normal, you know, when we get up mm -hmm. in the morning, and there you are. We appreciate that. That's thank awesome. You. Uh, but there are places where we just haven't needed to move back to campus yet, uh, where we've shut things down in such a way uh, that we don't need to do that. We're able to accomplish the work. We do have a plan, and it's sort of a phased plan, but it's not. It's, there are no official dates. 
uh, we're working with people to figure out when the, the appropriate moment is to have someone back on campus. Now, when students are back, we want to have services available to students. So that's a, obviously a huge consideration. Uh, so we'll, you know, August 17th will be a date when you'll see the, the doors open on campus and people will be able to come and go from campus as they have uh, in the past. Uh, but until then, you'll see sort of pockets of people moving back in as we as we need them to move back in based on their, their job duties and the things that we need to happen. So we're taking a, a more deliberate way. We think, you know, uh, less exposure to each other in the short term is probably a good idea. Uh, and we're easing back into it in an appropriate way. And as you suggested, you know, we do have members of our campus community who have you know, real health concerns or who are caring for someone who has, has real health concerns. And we've, we put processes in place to, to account for that and allow those folks where we can uh, to allow those folks to continue to work remotely. And if, if we can't, uh, to put in place extra precautions so that they're safe. So it's a, we're being deliberate about it. We, we didn't want some mass, again, mass movement back onto campus. We wanted to take our time and make sure it was based on function uh, more than just some imperative to reopen our campus. But what you will see is our campus will be open August 17th. Well, it certainly is a, a changing every week, every day, and all the credit goes to you guys for your planning and, and continuing to be able to be flexible, and I think that's what pretty much in society we're all going to have to do that or else, well, it's going to be hard to live in, in the society if you can't adapt. Yeah, and I, I just one last thing I'd like to just say is that I really appreciate you know, everybody who's uh, sort of rolled with all of this, it's been very difficult. And I know that there's a lot of anxiety out mm-hmm. there uh, among faculty and staff and students uh, at our institution. But I just want to assure people that, you know, we're going to work with you. We want to make you safe. Uh, we want to make you comfortable as well. And we don't want people to be anxious and concerned. Uh, and what I'd encourage is, you know, if you can over the next few weeks, you know, get some rest uh, and, and take the time uh, for yourselves and we'll get back to it uh, in plenty of time uh, and, and get our, our best work done for our students when, when we're ready to do so. But I want to just acknowledge that people are, are nervous and upset and we totally get it. Uh, we are trying to work on your behalf and, and raise critical concerns uh, as they come up. Uh, there's no sort of, you know, uh, thoughtless or headstrong movement to, to do any one thing here. We're trying to do the right thing, uh, and we're taking our time and making sure that we figure out what that right thing is. You know, I'm sure we'll all look back and say, why didn't we do this or that, and, and could have, should have, would have, but it, it's a matter of what you know at the time, and it's kind of the way with the, what's going on in the state. Why didn't we go to mass sooner? You know, people could ask that, but we don't know, and I think, like you said, we're, you're doing the best as you can with the information you have, and that's the way it's going to continue to be. And I want to thank you for all your work, and thank you for coming on KMSU to help update us on what's happening. We've been talking with Dr. Matt Cecil, the provost of Minnesota State University, on what's happening within a f- just a few short weeks uh, when campus reopens. That's right. Thank you so all much. All right. Thank you, Karen. Yep. Goodbye. Take care. Bye-bye.